they do spend a lot of time at the start of the film setting this up to be a very traditional rom-com. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been dating for a year and Abby's going and getting a ring and talking to her friend about how she's going to ask Harper's dad to bless their union or some patriarchal bullshit. But that's not what the film's about. Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Faye Fix. And I'm Charlin. And this week we're talking about the same thing everyone else is talking about, the happiest season. Yes, there is... Finally, a popular LGBT Christmas movie. It is about a lesbian couple. Nice change of pace from we, all the other sappy Christmas movies. We say that apparently there are two other LGBT Christmas movies coming out this year, but I only found out about that when we were reading up for this just before we did it. So yeah. we're talking about this one. The gay um, crop is late, but it's a bumper crop this year. <laughs> uh, we will obviously be spoiling the plot of The Happiest Season if we have any other Spoiler warnings or content warnings, we'll drop those in here. If you're listening live, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the risk you take listening live. Hello! We actually have no spoiler warnings this week. And we don't really have any content warnings either. I mean, it is a coming out story, so there's that. That's pretty much it. Yep. Great. Yay! Back to the past. Welcome back. So I think to start talking about this, because it's going to inform so much of what else we're going to talk about, We need to address the backlash against Harper on social media. We should start with the summary of the work. Oh, we do do that, don't we? Yes. Okay, well, I guess we'll start with that. Everything will make a lot more sense if we do that. Well, off you go. Happiest Season is a Christmas movie. Let's see, it follows Abby, who is impulsively invited to her girlfriend's house for Christmas. They've been together for about a year, and... Harper, who is Abby's girlfriend, kind of tries to back out on the invitation initially, but goes through with it anyway. And it turns out that when she told Abby that she'd come out to her parents and told her, uh, told them about their relationship, she had been lying and had not actually come out to them because they're very image conscious, whatever. And so she wants Abby to just kind of pretend to be straight and like they're not together until like after Christmas at which point Harper swears she'll tell them so Abby kind of reluctantly agrees to go along with this hijinks ensue with them kind of trying to steal moments together but that being awkward and then like Abby finds out by meeting people that Harper grew up with that Harper basically outed her first girlfriend because she wouldn't acknowledge being in a relationship with her um which brings up a lot of feelings for abby about like being hidden in a similar way and but anyway eventually it sort of culminates in the coming out story for harper and that happens very dramatically and then abby is going to break up with harper anyway but harper convinces her to give her another chance and they seem to live happily ever after the end yeah although there is apparently like the possibility of a sequel in the works but if they don't then live happily ever after that it'll kind of invalidate the first film so yeah okay so let's get into it so i think the place that we have to start with this is to talk about the sort of fake out plot that they give you at the start of the film um yeah there's been a lot of backlash against harper online that Mm -hmm. i think is a little unfair i very much understand it Mm -hmm. but i don't think it's entirely just understanding where that character is coming from and what the story's about. Mm-hmm. They do spend a lot of time at the start of the film setting this up to be a 
very traditional rom-com. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been dating for a year and Abby's going and getting a ring and talking to her friend about how she's going to ask Harper's dad to bless their union <laughs> or some patriarchal bullshit. But that's not what the film's about. Yeah, it seems like it's going to be sort of like, you know, the sappy, maybe Harper's parents won't like Abby or some other like straight rom-com that we've seen a million times. Right. And uh, that's not what we actually have going on. It's actually more of a coming out story. Right. We don't actually get the proposal during the movie. It's relegated to the credits. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's an Instagram post. That's all we get of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people don't like Harper because they're coming into it and it's a story told from the point of view of Abby. Mm-hmm. But it is, as you say, it's Harper's coming out story. And the relationship isn't the central focus. The relationship is something that is enduring through that, mostly. Mm-hmm. But Harper spends a lot of the movie being shitty because she's being her survival mode self. Right. And she's kind of regressed into all of the behaviors and perspectives that she had in high school, which is very clearly not her most evolved time. A point in time at which she is willing to throw other people under the bus to prevent what she sees as threats to her stability. And you do get the full regression there with that then throwing, trying to throw Sloane under the bus, I guess, like Mm -hmm. with denying it again. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also in her costuming. In the opening scene, she's wearing, like the opening couple of scenes, she's wearing much more baggy clothes and things. And then like she's wearing clothes very like her mother most of the time. Like her mother buys her a dress to be like, hers so that she can conform to the family image as an early christmas present yeah that's like such a bullshit it's totally not an early christmas present it's a move that her mom is making to control the photos in the party the next day it's very in character especially for that character who like very shortly after greeting and gushing over her daughter also asks if she brought concealer like it's very consistent throughout yeah i don't want to say that like i don't think that what Harper does is in any way good. I don't think it's acceptable, but I do think it's understandable and I do think it's realistic. Yeah. We have a question in the chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think the way the movie is shot or presented makes it seem more like Abby is the main character? I do, because you don't get as much inside Harper's mind. Yeah. Um, but it's more that Abby is the lens for it, mm-hmm. I think. And I don't think that this is a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are three things that I would change about it. One, I don't know if it would break the film would be if you could see more of Harper's character within her brain because you get the outside look of Abby seeing her as this sort of regressed self who's playing it straight, but you don't really understand until monologues toward the end why that is. Yeah, and I think that those are there because it is necessary if you are going to not hate Harper. like. Harper's trying to explain the transactional nature of her parents' love and things like that, and also John's monologue about the coming out process and it not being something that you can draw a conclusion on the strength of a relationship based around are critical to not just writing Harper off as just a horrible person. But I also think an important aspect of appreciating Harper and like the place that she's in is maybe having that experience or being able to put yourself in that position of being that scared. And not everyone, 
I think, is in a place to do that. Yeah, it was a little rough for me at times, having seen, like, how much Harper is pushed back on online, and then relating so much to some of Harper's characteristics and choices. Mm-hmm. We all weren't our best selves in our teens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to come back to the John monologue, but I do think that there are two moments that drive home part of the problem with this. And it's Abby talking on the phone to John and saying that she doesn't recognize who Harper is. Mm-hmm. It Like when she's here. And Harper saying that she's hiding me. Mm-hmm. And it's that you don't get a really good shot of who Harper and Abby are in a relationship by themselves before the point that they're both thrown into crisis points. Yeah. At the start of the movie, Abby is already uncomfortable because it's Christmas and she has strong emotional feelings about Christmas. And then we get two scenes with them before they're thrown into this position of Harper being like, oh God, family, I've got to be this other person there. And Abby also having to be a different person for that same reason. They do try and like capture that relationship story in the postcard scenes in the intro. Yeah. It's quite easily missed Mm -hmm. and it doesn't do enough in my opinion. Yeah. And I think that the only way you do catch it or really put that together is because of the streaming medium where you can pause it. And I know a lot of people saw this in theaters. So if you're seeing it in the theater it's going to be even harder to track the timeline of that relationship and what's going on in the pictures and the dates. Because I know we had to pause and back it up a couple of times to put together, oh, they've been together about a year at the start of this film. And these are the sorts of things that they've done together. It's all these milestones. And they had Thanksgiving with John, etc. All of that is important and makes sense in the context later of like the fact that like, John and Harper are friends. John clearly sympathizes with where both of them are in this situation at the end. And that's part of why he encourages Abby at the end to give Harper another chance now that she has taken the leap of coming out to continue to build that life together. Yeah. Um, Because you can tell, like, based on his family and coming out experience, he probably was also hiding who he was for a very long time and and can kind of see the pain there. Yeah. Like, you can extrapolate that they've had a long, happy relationship for the last year, but you don't get the emotional payoff of that. That Mm -hmm. does mean that it only seems as though Harper is kind of shitty to Abby for the entirety of the film. Yeah, it kind of paints a picture of her as someone who's just very impulsive and doesn't think things through and doesn't consider how her actions might hurt other people. And that's even in the opening scene when they're enjoying the Christmas tour or whatever, when she impulsively is like, let's climb up the scaffold onto these strangers roof. And then Abby is the one who literally falls off the roof because There was no plan beyond getting up there and looking at how pretty. See, I've been thinking about that scene because you pointed out that like it is Harper's impulsive actions that put Abby in danger and it being a similar thing with then when they're at their parents' place or her parents' place. But I think it makes a lot of sense that Harper does act impulsively that way. And I think it's important that it's shown there in the fact that you don't see her act that way for the rest of the film in a lot of ways like that's such a i don't care about the consequences or the image of this if someone catches up here catches up here will oh no will run away Mm -hmm. but they're not worried about what people will say or anything i don't know she does do other impulsive stuff at the house like sneaking into the downstairs room where abby's staying and things like that but you know we've got an interesting question like maybe staging the first half of the movie as a rom-com works against the setup of their relationship because 
rom-coms thrive off presenting big story points one at a time and so it might not work as well for a story like this i don't know because i i think that it kind of comes around at the end and we can get into that later staging the first half as a rom-com i think does kind of set up a lot of the harper hate i think that's a big part of it yeah i don't know i kind of like the setting it up as a rom-com and then diverting it and and subverting the expectation right because it's it's setting it up as that warm familiar heteronormative thing that you know Mm -hmm. and then telling a more genuine lgbt story in there Right. And I think that's kind of the message in the whole thing with Harper's mom, Tipper, talking about the end of like, we keep focusing so much on this like nebulous, I mean, not nebulous, very specific idea of what's normal and what's perfect, but we haven't actually looked at what we want and what would actually be perfect for us and what's genuinely the right move or, or situation. And that's kind of the whole thing with like with the, with the story arc, you know, it's setting you up. This is just going to be your normal rom-com thing that you're familiar with it's comforting and the same and then it's not but it's something that is more moving because it is more particular to individuals than that yeah um there's a couple of things there that i do want to come back to a little later on having sat here and defended harper for a minute (laughs) um i do want to like lay on the fact that what she does is not okay no i think that what she does is realistic and i think that there are plenty of people who watch this movie and either see themselves in Harper as the person who had to hide who they were or as Abby who's not hiding themselves but has to be the hidden partner mm-hmm. and people who have been on both sides of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the things that Harper does are very damaging and I think one of the ones that you wanted to talk about was her lying about Abby's sexuality as well. Yeah, well, just everything that Harper does in terms of trying to get the Christmas where her parents still think that she's the person that they think that she is, basically, like, without coming out, reduces Abby in, like, absolutely every dimension of, like, her personhood. Like, it removes anyone's ability to engage with her beyond this extremely superficial designation of Harper's orphan friend, which is so much less than what she is, and then also kind of sets off this, I don't know, like socially prescribed set of interactions where like everyone's meeting her and they just either ignore her or they pity her and they're not actually getting to know her in any meaningful way. And it just reduces her in so many ways. It reduces her as a confident lesbian woman who knows what she wants out of life and is in a happy relationship and has, you know, moved forward and you know, had a healthy relationship with her parents before they died and things like that. Like, there's so much more going on with her that is completely erased as far as all of these new people who are so important to her partner are getting to know about her in this initial meeting. Yeah, it's interesting because it almost seems as though the more logical thing to define her as to her parents would have been my roommate Abby, who is studying art history at Carnegie Mellon. Right. Like, this is clearly a thing that's impressing to her dad, and it's a family that cares a lot about accomplishments. Mm-hmm. But it's Harper telling the most convenient lie. For or Harper. omitting the most mm-hmm. inconvenient truths. Where it's, well, how can I explain to my parents why this person is here? Mm-hmm. Her parents aren't around, so she's not with her. That's what I'll define her as. Yeah. It's the most convenient box to put Abby in for Harper to get what she wants, which is for her parents to be okay with Abby coming for Christmas. Yeah, and it literally puts her back in the closet. Yeah. In what is 
possibly the most heavy-handed scene. Yes, it's quite heavy-handed. Although I commend the lie. Like, Harper says Abby is a bad liar, and she is. But the sleepwalking one was probably, like, the only believable thing you could say in that situation, and so kudos. Yeah, I was definitely braced for, like, a dumb lie that was going to get a response of, no, what are you really <laughs> doing here? And I believe that Tipper's the kind of person who did once accidentally buy a racehorse on Ambient. Like. <laughs> so I want to talk about a couple of the side characters that work for a lot of context about the characters, but also sort of the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. The first one of these is obviously John. Yeah. I am aware that occasionally on this podcast, I get into like a bit of, what's the word? Just fanning over things like David Diggs in mm-hmm. Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, I very much enjoy John's character. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he adds a lot of value. So I'm going to try not to do that and just try to talk to the storytelling element. Mm-hmm. We'll see how well I do. We talked a bit about how it's set up initially in very much the original beats of that rom-com heteronormative world. Mm-hmm. John's little repartee about marriage and asking for the consent of the father and things does so much to characterize that setting. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, I'm going to make generalizations about LGBT people because mm-hmm. I only have my own experiences and those of my friends. But like, I don't think you could have an LGBT rom com type film like this without some acknowledgement of the issues of some of the social constructs around marriage. Yeah, well, I think it's important that scene between the two of them to show that the LGBT community is not a monolith, that there are aspects of the community that do have too many issues with like the patriarchal and heteronormative roots and like chattel roots of institution of marriage to want to perpetuate it. And that there are also parts of the LGBT community who still see value in a lot of the cultural reasons for marriage in our society and want to participate in it for those reasons. You know, what Abby is saying about wanting to make sure the world knows that they're the most important people in the world to one another and that, you know, they are building a life together and et cetera. I think it's important that both points of view are established as not just being there, but also being completely valid points of view, just depending on who you are. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you'll find some gay people who oppose gay marriage because they're just like, let the straights have that. I don't agree with that point of view, but they exist. Well, I mean, it's kind of what Drew is saying. John kind of serves as the bridge between the movie and the audience. And in a way, I think that that's a similar function there of like acknowledging what some people in the audience would probably be thinking when Abby is like, I want to propose and ask her dad for his blessing. And, you know, there's going to be some people in the audience who are going to be like, but why? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... At the point of, like, I'm going to propose because I want to build a life with her, I'm like, yeah, you do that if that's what you want, but only if it's what you want. And then when she's like, and I'm going to ask her dad for her blessing, like, no, you're not. (laughs) Don't do that. What? (laughs) Stop. Oh, I've peaked my microphone. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think it's important to have John there to make those parts of the audience feel seen. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know about saying that he's a bridge. I guess so, because he's sort of, says the things that don't necessarily need to be said to explain. It's like when you have a psychic in a detective story so the detective can say, aha, you see it's because of this. It avoids some of the exposition fairy type stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, Drew's, Drew and Kat are saying maybe a bit fourth wall breaky, and I think it is. It's, But it's more like, to me, more than fourth wall breaky because it's not like acknowledging that we're in a movie, but it is 
very much like he's the one who has the reactions that some of the audience are going to have and it does make the movie flow better because otherwise you're just mad that your very obvious issue hasn't been acknowledged. Yeah. And I mean, I certainly could believe them giving John like a look to camera at some point in there. So (laughs) yeah. But I think that he's very important for sort of characterizing where Abby is Mm -hmm. from an outside point of view, because I mean, it's really that big coming out conversation that he has monologue and just emphasizing that Abby is out, but in a very different stage of being out. Well, she's had a very different experience of being out. Kat's saying, you know, he's the gay best friend, but as written by an actual gay person. And and that's like the best version of that role. And I think that's very much what it is. Like he's the one who has the perspective that is sort of encompassing of both where Abby is and where Harper is. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm amused because during our second watch of the film, I made some noise about like, ah, you know, I I need a friend like John. Charlene thinks that I am the friend like John. But I think I do have someone who does fill that role in my life and they're not gay and it seems wrong somehow. (laughs) (laughs) But back to the coming out conversation. Mm -hmm. That was, I think, one of the points when I realized what the film was about Mm -hmm. and that it's not about the relationship. It is about that coming out story. And I think that because we've been given Abby as our lens, up to that point, we are looking at Harper and going like, but why don't you just be open about this? I'm open about this. It's the easiest thing to do. Why are you being deceptive? Mm -hmm. And it's an opportunity for the film to say, if you're in that place, great. Mm -hmm. Everybody isn't there yet. It was a very emotional scene for me to watch Mm -hmm. as someone who, after I had worked out what my labels were, didn't come out for seven years, five years, many years, Mm -hmm. because it was just easier not to. Yeah, and I do think that you can see that that's kind of what's been happening for Harper for this whole time. Like she's been sort of taking the path of least resistance because all of the consequences of coming out have just loomed so large because there's so many unknowns. And more than the unknowns, I think it's pretty clearly implied that she really does think she's going to lose the positive aspects of her relationships with her family. She thinks she knows what will happen and she thinks it will be bad. And that's a hard thing to tackle and decide you're okay with. She doesn't really make that decision until she is forced to, but she then does actually decide to make it because she tries denying it and she could have kept on denying it. And that's the kind of family where if she had decided to keep denying it and broken up with Abby, her parents would have ignored it because they also would do the easy thing that causes the least ripples in their lives and in the perceptions of other people of their family. You know, so she could have continued to choose to hide. And it's only when she realizes that the cost-benefit analysis of taking that risk isn't what she wants anymore that she is able to finally make that decision. Yeah. I appreciate that the film doesn't judge Harper for not being ready to come out. It judges the choices she makes around it and the people that she hurts in not doing it. Yes, which Um, I think is appropriate. Yeah. And I appreciate that it also shows some of like the mental gymnastics people do to get around it, whether it's Harper's like explanations of why it wasn't the right time this time or Mm -hmm. that time or, well, you know, he's got this big race coming up Mm -hmm. after Christmas, like, uh uh-huh. And then after Christmas, it will be something else. Like if your hand isn't forced at some point or unless you force your own hand. 
But I think it's interesting that you also get a little bit of a reflection of that with Abby when she's on the phone with John and John's like, how are you okay with pretending to be straight? And she's like, well, you know, it's kind of fun. It's like having a secret. And she's totally lying because yeah. she's miserable. Yeah. So we have John in that role. And I think there's a very similar role played by Riley in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot to say about Riley in different ways. Do you want to lead off? Well, I think that Riley is a very important, again, context for Harper's past and also the fact that that situation that Harper was in with Riley is being recreated with Abby and Harper and Sloan, where Harper is, again, hiding a girlfriend, which is hurtful to her partner, and trying to out another person's secrets to preserve her own self-image and relationship with her family and other people. It's part of showing how Harper regresses when she's at home and with those same people where she was in a much more immature place and wasn't as comfortable with herself and just generally more insecure. But also is important for giving like Abby someone else to kind of relate to around that situation like while it's happening someone else who also knows harper and that community and those people yeah and it's it's another out person for the story who can mirror abby in some ways yeah and they're they're in the same place yeah abby thought she and harper were in the same place but they weren't and she and abby are in the same place and are now having the same weird experience about harper yeah and there's been a lot of noise online about people wanting Abby to end up with Riley instead. Yeah, I'll admit I was kind of guilty of that. I think it's just Aubrey Plaza is such a good actress and those characters had so much chemistry on screen. But I think that it is more of like a friendly sort of chemistry there. It's just that Aubrey Plaza's character, Riley, is so much more confident and in a much better place compatible to the place Abby's in. Abby says, I want to be with someone who is ready to be out. And that is Riley. Riley's the other person we see in that situation. Yeah, which is difficult. I was talking with someone and they were saying Aubrey Plaza is much less Aubrey Plaza than they're used to in this. Hmm. And I think that's fair. But I struggle to think who else could have filled the role because they have to be endearing for us to get the story about Harper from them, confident enough to have that acceptance at the end, but do it all in so little screen time. Mm-hmm. I can't see someone else in that role, personally. But I do think, with so little time, she doesn't get a whole lot of characterization beyond being confident and out, Mm -hmm. and having that shared history. We don't know a huge amount of her beyond that. She makes the quips about the Doctor stuff and that being a pain, which is fun. But it's not characterization. We don't get a strong sense that Abby and her should definitely be together. I don't know. I think another important thing that Aubrey Plaza brings to that is that she's very good at bringing a quality that's somewhat unsettling to every role that she plays. And in this, I think it's really important that someone is drawing attention to how uncomfortable a lot of this stuff is. Her presence is uncomfortable to Harper for obvious and important reasons. And you can get a sense of that even before you find out what happened and what Harper had done when they were in high school. It's something that is very appropriate for Abby to be much less uncomfortable with. Because in a lot of ways, Riley is sort of the hallmark of the truth and what has actually happened and like the fact that there's some ugliness there in what Harper is doing. I think that what you're picking up on is that she's moving through this conservative world and 
giving zero fucks about her identity. Mm -hmm. And I think it's shown by the fact, someone please fact check me on this, because I think that the only people, like the only named characters that she interacts with are Abby, Harper, and a brief greeting to Sloane. And I think everyone else just moves around her. She's at the Christmas party, but there's no tipper saying, oh, hi, Riley. Mm -hmm. Great to see you. She's almost a ghost to them. That sounds right to me. I think you're right about that. But I also don't think that there's anything weird about that. But I think that that's part of what makes her seem to make other people uncomfortable, is that other people don't acknowledge her. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's established there's in-world history reasons in that, like, everyone knows her as, ooh, that lifestyle or whatever, you know, that she's got this reputation, and so she is marginalized in this community. Right, but I think that that's that's the point I'm making, is that that is being represented this Mm -hmm. way. And I think is, again, I think is important of another facet of that representation. Yeah, but I, what I'm saying is I think Aubrey Plaza really kind of embodies that in every scene, like that she is bringing this discomfort with her everywhere she goes, yeah. disrupting the heteronormative expectations of this particular community. Brief tangent. Drufus is suggesting Anna Kendrick could play the role. I haven't seen Anna Kendrick in enough stuff to really weigh in on that. I think she could play a version of the character, but honestly, I would cast her as Jane before I cast her as Riley. Mm, I could see that from my limited experience of her. But the role that Riley fills in the film is one that certainly rings very true to me, which is her and Abby seem to click so well because they're the two out-ish people. Mm-hmm. I've definitely gone to parties where I inexplicably find that I am talking to the one other out trans person in the house. Why? Because we have something shared. Mm-hmm. Um, like we have those same experiences, those same perspectives on things. I don't know what it is. Like I get along with all the other people, but somehow I'll end up talking to those people for half a night. And that's the relationship that I saw when I saw Abby and Riley was these people who understand each other. Mm-hmm. There's nothing particularly romantic in that riley moves to her side of the booth at one point Mm -hmm. it's very clearly though because that's where you need to be sitting to be able to see the continuing of the performance yeah i think that you can read a lot into that but i don't think it's intended to be Mm -hmm. i am also cheating because while i thought and voiced all of these thoughts to charlene before this i did read today an interview with the director producer writer claire duvall with an interviewer who seemed to be very in love with audrey plaza (laughs) Um, and the interviewer asked like people are saying that Abby and Riley should have ended up together and her response was effectively I mean do they want Abby to end up with her or do they want them to end up with her like (laughs) Uh, that's fair yeah one of us will link that interview in the show notes I think it highlights a lot of very important pieces about the piece and talks about her experience on both sides of that coming out divide and her own yeah and her own relationship with the Harper character that was very vindicating for me to read. <laughs> yeah. My my issues with the people who are shipping Abby and Riley aside, I think that both her and John do provide like these crucial lenses onto who Abby and Harper are and where they are in those positions. Mm-hmm. And also where they might go, because particularly John, because I think it's implied that at some point he was hiding who he was for a really long time and very well may have similarly hurt people the way that Harper is doing and has done. And eventually he got to a point where he is able to live authentically in all spheres of his life. What makes you say that? Because 
John says his dad kicks him out of the house, mm-hmm. which implies he was younger than 18, maybe. Maybe. I guess you can hurt people before you're 18. Well, yes, that, yeah. that's what happened with Harper, with Harper. and, and yeah. uh, bleh, with Harper and uh, Riley as they were in high school. But I mean, I don't think that that strong of a reaction as kicking your child out of the house comes out of a vacuum. And there very well might have been some hiding of relationships prior to that. Or if not on his end, he may have also known other people who did hide their relationships. He seems to have a sort of a wider lens perspective on how you end up in that kind of situation where you are being really shitty like that. And that it doesn't necessarily mean that you are, in fact, that it doesn't mean that you're a terrible person. You have done something terrible. But we've talked about this a lot in the show that like people do horrible things and it is not the sum of who they are. Yeah. It is that thing that just keeps me coming back to, I just want the extra 10 minutes at the start of the film to just to just show us Harper as she is mm-hmm. before the crisis. But uh, I mean, it's it's a 90 minute rom-com. Mm-hmm. I think there's some law that says rom-coms can't be more than 90 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I know I don't watch a lot of rom-coms, but I feel like they're probably in that 90 minute category. I definitely think that the kind of Christmas movie that it is in the slot for are supposed to be sort of short and simple in terms of format and not necessarily have a bunch of build up like that yeah and drew saying if it was longer it would have dragged i suspect that that concern of like having that more time making it kind of feel slow it was probably a consideration to kind of have it move quickly along through the plot but i agree that it would help with not having the screaming harper like fits during like the first half the movie yeah just why are you so awful (laughs) And it is difficult. I don't know what I would cut out of the movie to fit it in at the start. Yeah. This is one of those, like, in a perfect world, I would like that part of the story, but I also Mm -hmm. recognize there are realistic issues with making films. Yeah, and so I get why they try to cram it into the postcard sequence at the beginning. It's just, again, that's really easy to miss, and a lot of context is not there. Drew has suggested maybe cutting the necklace-stealing part. Yeah, I think that that is probably... I mean, I understand what they're trying yeah. to do with that, where they're, I think that's really trying to feed into this rom-com Christmas movie format of like, oh, her parents won't like her and that's going to make it so much worse or whatever. But like, because that's not really the arc, it is kind of unnecessary. Mm. Mm, you would need something in its place. And I don't know what it would be. Like thinking about it, that's there to drive a wedge between Abby and the family mm-hmm. so that Abby can feel isolated enough to call John. And be mm-hmm. like, this is fucking bullshit. And I don't know what you would replace it with that wouldn't have longer lasting consequences. Mm. I mean, as it is, like, it's not addressed enough. She is owed a goddamn apology at the end. Mm-hmm. The kids are like, oh, we put the necklace in the bag. And she's like, oh, thank you for owning up to it. And then everyone just moves on as if they hadn't just made her a pariah and suggested she was stealing their brooches. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it is essential to the actual story. I don't know. I'm on the Personal. fence. You'd have to change the story drastically to remove it, I think. So we're going to talk about the family's response to the coming out. Yeah. And to me, this is where it really fulfills that initial promise of being a sappy Christmas movie. Because it is saccharine and a little unbelievable, as Kat and Drew point out. Like, the dads in particular, like, turnaround is very fast and very complete and very at odds with, like, his entire career and like drive up to that point, particularly with the turning down the money from the donor. But it's exactly what's necessary for it to be an overly sappy Christmas movie. 
See, I don't know. Like, I agree with the general thrust there, but I don't know that the dad's turnaround is too quick. Like, the turnaround overall is very fast, and we can talk about why that is. But it's Tipper, not the dad, that has made the lifestyle comment about Riley. Mm -hmm. And it's the dad that goes and, like, takes time to reflect, who has to leave and walk away and think about things. I don't know, because Tipper's comment about the lifestyle is then immediately followed by her dad going, such a shame. You're right, it is. And to me, like, the they must be relieved with her lifestyle, like, to me, that's more of a reflection of the drama and than an actual considered reflection on her values. Like, it was a, clearly a big thing at some point in the community, like, oh, eh, scandal. And because they are so image conscious, and Tipper in particular is sort of managing the image of the family, it kind of seems like a socialized response in that way that may not actually go much deeper than that perception thing. And when her perception of herself as a parent is thoroughly shattered by the one-two punch of Harper and Sloane both hiding huge things from them because of the concern that the family love is contingent on like this perfect image, I think does provide some impetus to look a little deeper than that and be like, okay, wait a minute. I've clearly lost the plot here as a parent. Yeah, I think that the dad's reaction I would struggle with more if Tipper didn't go and have the conversation with him where he, she's like, we have been putting image so far ahead that our kids don't love us and we need to address this. Mm -hmm. I see that Kat has said in the chat that Tipper's turnaround seems more unrealistic than the dad's. And my first instinct is yes, because it is so sudden. And like, you get this, oh, I've always wanted to try karate. Okay, but ha that hasn't been laid out in the film before. Mm -hmm. Except that I was thinking you'd need to see her have some sort of distaste for all the pretense. Mm -hmm. But you do, lightly. When Abby asks her where to put the present and she mm -hmm. snaps at her, mm -hmm. that is that signaling of, I'm stressed and frustrated by all of this. Mm -hmm. She, like, sort of collects herself and explains every year this Christmas party is effectively a pain in my ass. Mm -hmm. I'm famous for it. That's my appearance to society. But it's such a strain and it's not something I'm enjoying. Mm -hmm. Whether that's enough or not, I'd be open to discussion on. Mm -hmm. But I think it is supposed to set up the fact that she's not entirely happy with all of these things. It's difficult because it's hitting a, a lot of the rom-com beats and therefore I think you expect everything to be as on the surface as they are in traditional rom-coms but I think that there's some stuff that is supposed to be deeper in here mm -hmm. yeah again I think that the fast and very complete turnaround is it fulfilling that rom-com Christmas movie it's a Christmas like, miracle uh, requirement you know because that kind of thing happens in all of these sorts of specials where like, okay, they hate the protagonist at the beginning and then like something happens to change their perception and then like oh, everyone's happy and loves each other and it's all fine and like often there is bigger things. And, but I can understand it being harder to swallow because these are such huge issues and such deep biases that a lot of people have dealt with in their families and in their communities that has not gone away when they saw that it was hurtful and that these were people they loved. Yeah. I think the other aspect of it is the response from the family isn't great. I, the sisters are pretty much just like, yes, we're with you on this. But it is pretty good. And while it's very fast, it's not immediate. 
And I don't know. I did appreciate that it wasn't just a, oh, now you've come out. We love you. Mm-hmm. Like it is, we're going to go away and then we'll come back to where the kitchen and then your dad will turn up the next morning in his robe looking like he may or may not have slept very well. But I think the other part of it that makes it, oh, actually, you said this already, didn't you? The Sloan one-two punch, the fact that it was both of them at once. Yeah. yeah, I think if it had just been Harper, it would not have gone nearly as well. And I think that's why they include the Sloan stuff. Because otherwise, that would seem very unnecessary. But I think that's why it's there. It's because without it, they would just write Harper off the same way they'd written off their other kids and just maybe try and get her to hide her relationship like that donor wants him to yeah. and things like that. Because they wouldn't have the same effect of like having their entire perspective on parenting and their entire orientation to the world be shattered like that where they have clearly failed so utterly as parents i think one of the other things that i want to talk about in here was just the character of jane mm-hmm. and the role that she serves in here i sort of wanted to get your take on that so the character of jane makes me very sad because mm-hmm. it really does reflect on a ongoing and pervasive pattern of neglect and emotional abuse of her and their other kids but particularly like Jane is the black sheep, and it's it's a hugely toxic, but unfortunately not uncommon, like phenomenon in families where there's like one kid who like kind of is either blamed for everything or just sort of not given any sort of attention and kind of assumed to be a waste of time. And it's horrible, and it really does reflect horrifically on her parents, and it makes me just not like her parents, Harper's parents at all. Like the movie wants us to like them especially at the end they want us to think oh you know they can grow and change and i do believe people can grow and change and hopefully they accept this at this point but it does make me really not like them and kind of wonder like how well it would stick for them to try and be supportive because they've clearly made it such a habit to not be supportive of their kids the uh the instagram feed at the end would suggest that they are jane is why the mom's turnaround doesn't make sense to us from cat drew yeah and i think that that's a completely fair observation because the entire character of Jane kind of makes me question their ability to to do that kind of a turnaround as well because it's trying to do this happy Christmas movie thing. Like I, I try to kind of go along with it, but I totally get that criticism. Um, the Instagram feed at the end does suggest that like, at least with the um, Abby and Harper stuff, they are continuing to be supportive. They go to pride and things like that. The stuff with Jane is kind of annoying because she makes the painting mm-hmm. that's a really nice painting i like it mm-hmm. it's a little bit odd as a white elephant gift it's quite large but like i was expecting the joke at the end to be that it was bad and it's not it's good it's fine but the only person who acknowledges that is john like no one else is like wow jane made a nice painting like we should appreciate that and it seems as though they only become supportive of creative endeavors when she gets published and it's a new york times bestseller yeah as like oh, you've had commercial success. Well, now we'll support you. Yeah, no, I felt the same way because they are such achievement-oriented people and so focused on perceptions and things like that that I kind of felt the same way. It's like, yeah, they've said they're going to try and be supportive of all their kids now, but that hasn't been tested in the same way, especially because I'm sure with him running for a campaign and him like then getting the mayorship or whatever, I think I can read between the lines there and see where they might have gotten some progressive support then because they had openly supported their 
lesbian daughter or whatever. And so, like, there's all this other external support for them making this change. And it makes it easy to question how much of that is really a difference in the way that they're seeing their kids and the way that they're thinking about themselves as parents. Yeah. So I think that's everything that we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. But I think the big question is, is this the movie that it advertises? Hmm. So if you had asked me, is this a Christmas movie or is this a sappy Christmas movie? I would say yes, it is. It kind of seems like it won't be for a bit and then it kind of does it at the end. As I said, I think that the turnaround is what makes it that. But is it what it says it is? I'm not really sure what it's billing itself as. Certainly all the response I saw from people who like watched the trailers were like, oh, it's going to be a trashy holiday rom-com that's light and silly and finally we'll get an LGBT bad movie. No, it's not that. It's not light and it's not silly. It deals with some very real issues in a very genuine and heartfelt way that I think is very well done. It's a coming out story and that's never going to be a light-hearted thing. It is a Christmas movie. It is saccharine at the end. And so it does hit those beats. But I can kind of understand why people are mad when they're like, oh, I just wanted something light and silly and fluffy and gay and like literally gay, not just like holiday Christmas carol gay. And then they get this like deep emotional reflection on the coming out process and how it's painful sometimes and sometimes involves hurting other people, even though that sucks Um, and involves a lot of risk and personal courage. So I can understand why people are mad, but I also disagree. I've seen a lot of people who are like, it's not that hard. Just like take whatever the normal BS Hallmark Christmas movies are and just change out one of the leads so that it's a same-sex couple. And it's like, no, that's not authentic either because a lot of those are also very steeped in like very particular gendered tropes and things like that. And also it's just not a genuine reflection of, I think, the diversity of the LGBT experience. And just how complicated the world is and that it's not that simple. And the holidays are complicated, I think, for a lot of LGBT people because it's a any situation where families get together is not going to be that simple for most people, for most LGBT people. Yeah, I don't think it would work for switching out a character for a different gender in a very traditional rom-com because I don't think it would actually be realistic to the things that people do face Mm -hmm. unless they were rich white people, rich and entitled. Which I mean to be, well... What do you mean? Like, there is so much that I think is more unique to the LGBT experience within our society. The issues that you have to go around because of the world that we live in. That to try and just switch that out in a traditional story, you'd miss out on that unless you find some people who are somehow devoid of that. It's like... um with Le Guin, where you have to build a world where none of these pretenses exist mm-hmm. so that you can just tell the story that you want to tell. Yeah. Like, you have to write it within the world that is real. And I think that if you made that LGBT holiday Christmas movie that pretended that none of this stuff did exist, it would be accused of whitewashing things. Mm-hmm. You can't just pretend that that wasn't an issue. Yeah, I would agree. I get the feeling that this is a movie that works to sort of trick people into thinking that it's a fun holiday movie. Mm -hmm. It's certainly a decent part of it, and it does have the comedy throughout. But it kind of leads you in with that fake out of the, oh, it's going to be about proposing and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the movie, you've not got a proposal, and then they just hide it in the credits in the Instagram feed. Mm -hmm. And even that, oh, they're engaged in the Instagram feed a year later. 
Yeah, our uh, Discord is saying a character like John will likely need to provide that context for a while. Yeah, and I totally agree yeah. because that's the world we live in where we need that kind of mediation for yeah. the audience, for the story to be remotely, what's the word I'm looking for? Genuine? Genuine? Yeah. Yeah. But with the Instagram feed, I do want to acknowledge the fact that even though it's, uh, oh, they're proposed at the end, if you look at the dates for it, they wait until like the following October to get engaged. Which I really appreciate. Yes. Because if they had gotten engaged shortly after that like fiasco over Christmas when Harper had barely been out for like five minutes and her parents have said that they're going to be cool and then like have not actually had a chance to demonstrate that that's a consistent choice they're making, I would have been so mad. Yeah. No, I think it's a really good thing that they didn't. I did expect from the rom-com aspect them to like drop a proposal in the end or like in an after credit scene relegating it to the credits i think like is a really good way of making it more of a drama Mm -hmm. and making it more realistic and believable Mm -hmm. while just sort of hinting at the notion of it yeah and you still get that proposal at the end and like you still get the implication of the happily ever after that's so critical to it fulfilling that initial promise of being a happy romantic christmas movie about lesbians but without it being just horribly ill-considered decisions at the end. So yeah, I think it advertises itself as this sort of fun, trashy holiday rom-com. And I think in reality, it's a sort of drama comedy Mm -hmm. that is tricking its way into the holiday mainstream. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, well, this is the Trojan horse as part of the gay agenda to instill sympathy and empathy for the coming out experience in people who maybe don't fully understand what all that can entail. Yeah, I mean, if you're not sure that what we're saying is right, if you just, like, if you're gay and you just pick up your uh, copy of the agenda, it's actually mm-hmm. on page 247. Uh, it's all written out there. So. Anyway, so I think that's a good answer to the big question. I think the bigger question is, who is the most unlikable character in this movie? That douchey guy that tries to hit on Abby at the bar at the party. Also, the owner of Freddy's, because they <laughs> named their establishment Freddy's. We need- Presumably never meet that guy, but he's a douchebag, and I feel confident in saying that. That's fair. Uh, Connor is the ex-boyfriend of Harper from high school. Yeah, we're, we're talking about the beardy guy that Jane tries to hit on in return. Yeah, Abby's like, I'm not interested in meeting anyone, and Jane just swoops and is like, but I am, and goes and makes that guy uncomfortable instead. Which, you know, I feel should happen to those kinds of sleazy dudes more often. I don't like what that says about Jane as a character, but I do appreciate the just like, she said she's not interested aspect of it. Well, I don't know that Jane's necessarily trying to make this dude uncomfortable. She's just sort of like, but I'm interested in meeting someone. Oh, no, I don't like it. What it says about her desperation. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But I mean, she's already been established as a character who's been starved of affection. Yeah. But yeah, Fratties is just the most horrible name for anywhere. I think that might be one of the moments that we had to pause the film and just be like, what? I think the most unlikable character in the film is actually Harper's hair. Ooh, that's a good, that's a good candidate. Another point at which we had to pause the film and just be like, just have me complain about it for a few minutes. It's an important aspect of all of our film watching. I think it was the bangs that you really objected to. Yeah. The hair that launched a thousand memes. (laughs) It's not a bigger question. I just want to say that I did have an issue with Connor as a character. Not any part of his writing, but just 
the actor is just such a generic white dude but when he turned up for the second time I had to ask Sean if it was the same person or not. Yeah which is I think one of your most adorable difficulties in recognizing people is that you consistently struggle to tell apart bland looking white guys. Like we had this problem when we watched Veronica Mars. I think there's the poker game episode. Logan and Duncan and like two of their friends are all playing poker and you kept like every time it would like be on a different guy you would have to like cross reference with me like wait which guy is which guy they all look the same do you have any last thoughts or fun facts i think we did have some fun facts i've got a couple yeah so one is that eventually we figured out where i know the guy who plays connor from and it is from greek which is a cw show that i watched in college it's actually a pretty good show does he play a generic white guy he in it? He does. Well, he plays the head of a fraternity. So, yes. Okay. There we go. Also, Mackenzie Davis looks kind of like What's-Her-Face, who plays Rory in uh, Gilmore Girls. Stop. I don't know if that's a fun fact. It's just a weird tangent. Okay. We were trying to remember who Josh Hartnett was. Yes, that's um, right. Featured on Jane's childhood bedroom closet door. And it turns out that he and the writer, Claire Duvall, it was also the director, right? Yes, I forget all the stuff she has. The person behind most of the film. Um, were both in Sin City, but also starred in The Faculty together in 1998. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it was a fun choice for her to then have Josh Hartnett posters up all over there and it's someone she's worked with before. Mm-hmm. The other thing is the gay bar that they go to is called The Oxford, which is apparently a tribute to The Oxford Inn which was a lesbian bar in Los Angeles that closed in 2017. It was apparently the last lesbian bar in Los Angeles at the time. I hope that some have opened since then. I mean, they're probably not doing great with the pandemic, but Maybe it's important more... to have lesbian bars and gay bars in everywhere. Maybe they're more in- inclusive LGBT bars now. I don't know. I'd have to look into it. It's mm. just me being optimistic. Yeah. Because I'm sure that there's a certain type of lesbian bar that's full of TERFs. Mm, that makes sense. The chat has a fun fact. Oh. Drew has informed us that the street that they filmed at the start of the movie when Harper and Abby are getting the tour is actually a street in Pittsburgh where they filmed that's famous for always having really cool Christmas decorations. I did wonder about that because you had said that they filmed in February or finished filming in February. And so I was wondering if they had filmed during the previous holiday season and captured that local Christmas flavor. It's called Candy Cane Lane. That's amazing. And they apparently actually shot that shot in January. Huh. Maybe they just paid everybody to keep their stuff up a little bit longer. <laughs> uh, and then the last one is in the Instagram feed at mm-hmm. the end. If you look closely at the Pride Parade photo, mm-hmm. Claire Duvall is in that photo with her arm around Aubrey Plaza. Yes. Implying that not only have Harper and Abby stayed friends with Riley after presumably some sort of reconciling, but... Riley might now be dating Claire Duvall. I don't know. Which is pretty cool. I did notice that. I was very happy to see it. Which is the last late thought, and then we'll wrap this up, is I did really appreciate that when Harper apologizes to Riley at the end of the film, Riley sort of shakes her hand and says Merry Christmas or something, and doesn't say something like, oh, it's okay, or anything like it's a quiet acceptance of the apology and then moving on. Yeah. Rather than, like, minimizing any part of Riley's being upset about that for the last 15 years. Or... Yeah, I mean, it's implied that Riley got through that, obviously. Yeah. 
But that doesn't mean it wasn't painful or that she's forgiven Harper for it. Yeah, I like the way that was handled as well. I'm glad that Harper acknowledges that she had hurt Riley in that way and later acknowledges that that's something that she has regretted ever since. Yeah. I think it's an important part of her growth as a character, like remembering and thinking about that and you know, knowing that that was wrong and not something that she can allow herself to continue to do. Yeah. Okay, any other last thoughts? No, I don't think so. Okay, so that's all of it for the main episode. If you need some extra content from us, we've just done a pre-ramble before this talking about Adventure Time Distant Lands Obsidian, which is a sort of spin-off from Adventure Time. It's an hour-long thing about Marceline and Bubblegum. It is also very gay. That's just where we're at this evening. You can find that through our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash unramblings. You can support us there. You can sign up to get access to our Discord, listen to our live recordings, and chime in just like Drew, Kat, and Sam. Thank you for joining us for this recording. You can also find our, all of our podcasts on YouTube, and you can also find our YouTube videos there as well, where we, you actually get to see us and we talk about some smaller topics for much shorter amounts of time. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you will join us next time. We're but, getting echo. I don't know if you're seeing in the chat. I think it's more when you're talking and you're facing up because I think then the but sound sometimes bounces. I have to think, which means I have but to cock my head it, to the side and but look I think at the then ceiling. it bounces on the ceiling and the ceiling's yes. very high. And I will. I will look down and be yeah. downcast. It's yeah. fine. It just looks straight ahead at the microphone. Something. Something straight.